If you were with us last Sunday, whether in the morning or the evening, you are aware that we have began a short series, though it tends to be getting longer as I'm studying, of laying down a framework in regards to the issue of evangelism. A framework for us to follow personally as we go out to tell people about Christ and even corporately as a church. And we have seen as we've gone into God's Word that God's Word is not silent about this subject. In fact, it is really the the mission that we are on here. We have been mandated by the Lord Jesus Himself to go out and to share the gospel, to share the good news. And that as we do, we're to be motivated out of, a, out of love and out of fear. We're to be motivated out of our love for Christ, out of our love for the lost sinner, out of a love for the glory of God. Because as people get saved, they glorify God. The grace of God spreads and that brings glory to God. But also we talked about that a motivating factor for us should be fear. In some sense, a fear of when we have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for our life, for how we have lived once we have become a follower of Jesus Christ. But also a fear for the unbeliever because they're not aware that they need to be fearful, so we need to have the fear for them. So as we have been walking through this together, this morning we're going to come to what could almost be the most crucial elements, the most crucial parts of the framework when it comes to evangelism. And the first crucial element that we're going to look at this morning is the message of our evangelism. I mean, if we are supposed to go out and to tell people something, what is it we're supposed to tell them? If you think about this time of year, we're in the month of October and we're coming very close to the end of October. And October 31st is not a day to celebrate in regards to to Halloween in that sense, but October 31st is a significant day for us as a church, as God's people, because it was on that day in 1517 that a man by the name of Martin Luther, who was a part of the Catholic Church at that time, was concerned about some of the things he was seeing that were taking place. And he goes to the local Catholic church where he was and he nails to the door, which was something that was common in that day, and he nails something that came to be referred to as the 95 Theses. And the reason why that is important for us just to think about for a moment uh, this morning is because it ties directly to our message, the message of our evangelism. Because really what was Transpiring there, what would take place from that event is what would be the rescuing of the gospel because the gospel had become distorted. And in becoming distorted, it was losing its power. It was losing its authority to bring about salvation to those who were in so desperate need of it. Because the true gospel wasn't going forward of someone being saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Beloved, this didn't start in 1517. This started even back in the New Testament days. If you have your Bible, turn over with me to the book of Galatians for a moment. In Galatians chapter 1, 
Where Paul, notice, is not just writing to one church, but in verse 2 of chapter 1, he is writing to the churches of Galatia. This was a problem that was permeating through all of the churches that had been founded there, and they had been founded on the true gospel. But Paul had become concerned because he hears some things that are taking place there, beginning in verse 6, where he says, I'm amazed. What is he so amazed about? I'm, I'm amazed that you're so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? As we have said before, he says, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. There's that phrase again that we looked at a few weeks ago where Paul says that he and Timothy were bondservants of Christ. We're just slaves of Christ. We're here to carry out his mission. And if we're going to carry out his mission, we have to carry it out with his message. Paul was saying, it's not my message. It was his message. Read on over. Go over to chapter 2 of Galatians. In the first couple of verses of chapter 2, he's reminding them that uh, the gospel that he received and he came forward to Jerusalem with Barnabas to, to talk with them to make sure that he was preaching uh, the gospel he was preaching among the Gentiles. He talked to them in private because he was fearful. See, Paul had a fear. What was Paul fearful? That he might be running in vain or had run in vain. He wanted to make sure that what he was preaching was the true gospel. So he comes and they talk about that and he understands that the gospel that he was preaching was the same gospel that they were preaching. And beloved, may I say to you this morning, the gospel that they were preaching at the early church of Jerusalem, the gospel that Paul was preaching, is the same gospel that we're supposed to preach. It hasn't changed. There's nothing different about it. It's still the same. Look, if you will, this is why, if you go down to verses 11 through 16 of Galatians 2, this encounter that Paul has with Cephas, which is just another name for Peter. Because Peter... He has to, he, when he comes to Antioch, he opposes him to his face because he stood condemned. Because Peter began to do some things that were distorting the gospel. Because prior to coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews joined him in this hypocrisy with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. Think about this. These are some mighty men of God. Peter, Barnabas, 
These are some, some strong men of God that are getting carried away in some things that are distorting the gospel. And Paul has such a passion for the gospel that there's no distortion of it. That in verse 14, he says, When I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, in the presence of all. This wasn't a private conversation. Because Peter had done some things publicly that had distorted the gospel. So Paul comes to him in the public and says to his face, If you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. See, that's what they were distorting. They were distorting how it is that one came to have justification, how somebody could be justified, declared right in the sight of God. And through the actions of Peter and Barnabas, because of this party of the circumcision that was saying, faith wasn't enough. Faith alone in Christ, this repentant faith alone in Christ wasn't enough that you had to be circumcised, that somehow through the works of the law that, in, that was included and in you're being saved and justified in the sight of God. This is what Peter and Barnabas was, were declaring with their life and some of their actions. And Paul, understanding that if this continues on and people begin to believe this way, they're going to be leading people actually straight to hell. Because they're not teaching the true gospel. Beloved, I'm just driving this home for us to understand why it is so important that when we think about this critical element of the framework of our evangelism, whether you're talking to somebody personally, one-on-one, or you're talking to a small group, or you're preaching to a church, you're talking to a ladies' Bible study, a men's Bible study, a children's Bible study, that we have the message down of what God it is that God would want for them to hear. Let me show you one other example. And then we're going to get into the message that we're supposed to proclaim. Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 for a moment. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Now, this is a church at Corinth that we're going to see in a moment that, that Paul founded. And he comes in there, he preaches the gospel, people get saved, and a church forms. And some time has gone by, and he's been away from them, but he's hearing some things about them that's disturbing him. And in verse 1, he says, I wish that you would just bear with me a little foolishness. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. But indeed, you are bearing with me. For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. But I am afraid. Now think back to what we read a moment ago in Galatians. Okay? We read a moment ago, Paul had a fear that maybe he had been running in vain in the gospel he was preaching. Now he knows that gospel he's preaching is true, but now he has another fear. I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus, and that idea of another there is another of a different kind. They're preaching to you a different kind of Jesus whom we have not preached. 
Or you receive a different spirit. There's different messages which you have not received or a different gospel which you have not accepted. You're you're bearing this beautifully. That is, you're willing to sit there and just hear this and just keep going along with it. And he said, I'm I'm fearful of this for you. So I, I bring this to your attention to say that this is not something new. This is something that God's people have to keep coming back to time and time again to clarify. The message of our evangelism, the gospel itself. Now let's just look at the message. If you will, I want you to turn with me. We're going to be moving around. This is not a typical way we would do things. But go over to the the book of Romans, to Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Because it's a very important statement and phrase that is here that I think it's important for us to recognize and will help keep you on track. Romans 1, verse 1, Paul says that he's a bondservant of Christ Jesus. He's called... As so an apostle, as an apostle, he's been set apart. And notice what he says. He says, I've been set apart for the gospel of God. When you see that phrase there, the gospel of God, he's not just talking about this is the good news about God. He's also saying this is God's good news. Which means it's God's gospel. It's his message. It's his word to mankind. Thus, we don't have the right to tamper with it. We don't have the right to change it. We don't have the right to reshape it, to conform it to something that we want it to be. It's his message. And we're just the vessels that are there to proclaim that message. Now he goes on to give us that the heart and center of this message is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Notice what he says, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son. Verse 3, speaking about the humanity of Jesus, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. Verse 4 begins to speak about the deity of Jesus, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. So, beloved, at the heart of the message that we're preaching, it is God's message, and it is God's message about His Son. His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, about His humanity and about His deity and about what it is that He did for us on the cross. If you will, for a moment, look over in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Look over in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And in verse 17, he says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Okay? So Paul's saying, look, I was sent to preach the gospel. God's gospel that centers on the person of Jesus Christ, not in the cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. So here we see the gospel centers on the cross of Christ. Go over to chapter 2, 1 Corinthians. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God, but I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's the heart of the message. Stay in 1 Corinthians and go over to chapter 15 for a moment. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Again, we see where Paul has a concern. But he reminds them of the gospel that he preached. 
1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. He says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received and which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Now, do you remember what we read over in the book of Galatians in chapter 2 in his opening two verses when he went up to the city of Jerusalem to the leaders that were there because he, he had received this revelation from God of the gospel that he was supposed to preach and he went to them to make sure that what he was preaching was the same gospel that they were preaching. Well, he's letting you know here again in verse 3 that the message that he, that he was preaching was something that he received. And but yet, notice what it is. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Again, Paul is saying at the heart of the gospel message that I preach is that Christ died. And again, you peel that back and to say that Christ died has to speak about his humanity. But notice what he's dying for. He's dying for our sins. You have to explore why is he having to die for our sins? How is it he's qualified to die for our sins? How come we can't die for our own sins? How come someone else couldn't die for our sins? How come it can only be Jesus and Jesus alone who dies for our sins? And he was raised again on the third day. What's the significance of that? The victory that someone has over sin, the, so the victory that someone has over Satan through the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ. This is the gospel message that Paul was preaching to them. Now, think about what he said, and I want you to go back with me to Acts chapter 18. Go back to Acts chapter 18, because in Acts 18 is where we have Paul actually there preaching in Corinth. In Acts 18 and verse 1, it says that when he left Athens, he came to Corinth. And he's staying with some folks there and he's working. And pick it up in verse 4. He was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Verse 5, when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, he began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. So he's reasoning, he says there, trying to persuade them that Jesus was the Christ from the word. Now think about again, verse 4, he says he's reasoning, he's persuading. Go back now to chapter 17 of Acts. When he was there in Thessalonica, you get a little more detail as to how it is and what it is Paul was doing when he would come into an area and he says, I'm preaching the gospel. Look at what it says, verse 2. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths he reasoned with them. Same word we found in chapter 18. He's reasoning with them from the scriptures. What is this reasoning? What is he doing? He's explaining He's giving evidence that Christ had to suffer. There's the death of Christ. He's saying why it is that he had to suffer and why it is that he had to rise again from the dead and saying this Jesus whom I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ. 
You see, Paul was doing the same thing in Corinth that we read about here in chapter 17 when he was there in Thessalonica. He would go into these areas, go into the synagogue, open up the, the Old Testament, which was the only scriptures that they had, and he would take the word of God and begin to explain to them, show them from the word that Jesus was the Christ and as the Christ, he had to suffer, he had to die on a cross for our sins. No doubt he would take them to Isaiah 53 and show them the suffering servant who had to take our sins upon himself and through his wounds we would be healed. This is what he's preaching to them. What I'm saying is, is when you read that, those statements in 1 Corinthians 15 where he says, here's the gospel message that I preach to you that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and raised on the third day according to the scriptures, that that's just a summation. That, 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 that he didn't just go up to somebody and say, give me a yes or no answer. Do you believe that Jesus is the son of God? Yes. Do you believe Jesus died on the cross for your sins? Yes. Do you believe Jesus rose again on the third day? Yes. Okay, that's all you have to do. That's not what he's doing. You see here what he was doing. He's going into the word of God and fully explaining to you why it is that he had to suffer, why it is he had to die for our sins. He's going into the details about that. That's the message of our evangelism. And it's important that we have this message and we have the full message about the person of Christ and the provision of Christ and how it is that you come to receive this that God has done for you through His Son, Jesus Christ. I'm reminded of why it's so important that there is instruction, that there is a declaration and details about what it is that we're preaching or we're sharing with somebody of something that Charles Spurgeon said in his book called The Soul Winner. He says, listen to what he says. He says, quote, The gospel is a reasonable system, and it appeals to men's understanding, and it is a matter for thought and consideration, and it appeals to the conscience and the reflecting powers. Hence, if we do not teach men something, we may shout, Believe! 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 But what are they to believe? Each exhortation requires a corresponding instruction or it will mean nothing. We can shout, escape! Well, escape from what? This requires for its, for its answer the doctrine of the punishment of sin. We can cry out, fly! Fly! But where? We must preach Christ and His wounds, yea, and the clear doctrine of atonement by sacrifice. We can cry out, repent! Repent! Well, repent of what? Here you must answer such questions as, what is sin? What is the evil of sin? What are the consequences of sin? Be converted! What is it to be converted? By what power can we be converted? From what to what? You see, there, there, there have to be the answers to all of this as the person is coming to Christ. Because in, in the message that we preach, we preach about the person of Christ. We preach about the provision of Christ. And then we preach about the path to Christ. And that path is that repentant faith alone in Christ alone. 
You, you count the cost. You count the cost of coming to Christ. And as you count that cost, you realize it can be costly maybe to me here in this life. But there is nothing more precious. There is nothing more valuable. There is nothing more beautiful than the salvation that is provided me through Jesus Christ and Christ alone. As Paul even says over in Acts chapter 20, when he was speaking to the leaders of the church at Ephesus, he called them together. It's reminding them of what he preached and what he did, how he didn't, he didn't step back from declaring everything that needed to be declared for their profit. And how he went about proclaiming and preaching that repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, this is, we must call for the response. We must call for them to come to Christ, counting the cost, turning from their sins, putting their faith in Christ, in Christ alone. This is the message. This is the message that Paul preached. This is the message that Peter preached. This is the message that all the apostles preached. This is the message that you and I, that we are called to preach. We're called to share as we are evangelizing. Let's move to one other aspect. I call it the means of our evangelism. The means of our evangelism. By what means has God given to fulfill this mission of making disciples of Christ? And as you read through the Bible, you will see that there are two means that he has given. And these two must be involved for anyone to actually become a disciple of Christ. For us to actually make disciples of Christ. It is the means of his spirit and the means of his scriptures. The spirit of God and the word of God. Always remember, beloved, it is God who saves. We don't save anyone and no one saves themselves. As the scripture plainly teaches, salvation is of the Lord. So the means of salvation, the means of our evangelism, as we go out and proclaim this message, is going to be the Spirit of God and the Word of God. The the Spirit of God and the, the, the Scriptures of God. Think about this. We don't have time to look at all these verses, but just think about this. In John 16, verses 8 through 11, that's where we're told that it's the Spirit of God that brings conviction to a person about their sin, about judgment, and about righteousness. It is the Spirit of God that must convince that person of their sinfulness and of their need of Christ. We're told in the Gospel of John in chapter 3, in verses 1 through 8, where Jesus had that conversation with Nicodemus, where he said, There that is by the Spirit of God that a person will be born again. We're told in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13 that it's the Spirit of God that sets a person apart unto Christ in salvation. We're also told in Ephesians 1 and verses 13 and 14 that it's the Spirit of God that seals a person for all eternity in salvation. So whether we want somebody to be convicted, convinced, born again, sealed, whatever, set apart unto Christ, this is all the work of the Spirit of God. So the means of our evangelism has to be dependent upon the Spirit of God to do that work. But also, we have the Scriptures. 
Because as we're told in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verses 23 to 25, that it is the scriptures that the Spirit will use to bring about that new birth. It is the scriptures and the word of Christ that the person must hear in order for faith to even be able to come to them. It is the scriptures that will inform that person about their need of Christ and putting their faith in Christ. It is the scriptures, beloved, that Paul says, especially the gospel, that is the power of God unto salvation to anyone and everyone who believes. It is the scriptures that we're told in Psalm 19 and verse 7 that is able to actually restore the soul of a sinner. These are the means that we've been given, the Spirit of God and the Word of God. So as we go out with this message, we go out trusting in the Spirit, trusting in the Word to work in their heart. In fact, just to sum that up, go back, if you will, for a moment to 1 Corinthians. And go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Again, and just notice again what Paul says. Put together 1 Corinthians 1.17 and 1 Corinthians chapter 2 in the first few verses. When Paul says, for Christ, in verse 17, did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And notice how he says, not in cleverness of speech. Okay, I'm not going to come preach the gospel in some clever way because notice what he says, because if he does that, he knows the cross of Christ would not be made void. He doesn't want to make the cross of Christ void and by trying to be clever in what he's doing. Chapter 2, verse 1, And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was weak. Look, Paul can identify with us in verse 3. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Look, he, he was, there was a fear Paul had. He, he was afraid as he was there. And he was weak and he was trembling knowing that he had to go out and proclaim a gospel and proclaim a message that he knows that some are not going to receive and some are going to become hostile to it. But he goes on to preach it. And he says in my message in verse 4, and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. You see what Paul is saying there? Paul is saying in those verses that, look, as I came to preach to you, I recognize this. I recognize that it's only going to be through the Spirit and through the Scriptures that, that God's going to use to bring about the salvation in your heart and in your life. So I wanted to make sure when I got there that if somebody was making a profession of faith, it wasn't going to be on how clever I've been. I wanted it to rest on the power of the Gospel and the power and the demonstration of the Spirit of God. This is what Paul is driving home. And you see, beloved, this is what keeps us from manipulation. This is what keeps us from that. Because we know that it is God who's doing that work in their heart. I, I, I wish I could. I wish I could run out and somehow, in my own strength, in my own wisdom, in my own arguments, in my own persuasion, somehow some way be the way that could call somebody just to come to Christ and believe in Christ. But I can't do it. You can't do it. 
God has to do that work. You've got to go tell them. And they've got to believe it. And they've got to put their faith in Christ. But beloved, we've we got to trust in the means that God has given. To be honest with you, I'm actually thankful that it's not dependent upon me. Because that would bring a weight that I wouldn't want to carry. I wouldn't want to know that everybody's salvation was somehow dependent upon me and how well I could somehow present it, somehow argue it, somehow persuade you. No, it's, it's the Lord. It's the Lord. Let me give you one last framework and then we'll close. We see now what's the message Well, we can summarize it. It's Christ crucified. There's a whole lot behind that. What's the means? The Spirit of God and the Word of God. So what's the method? What's the method of our evangelism? Well, beloved, our method, scripturally, is twofold. It is real simple. Prayer and proclamation. Prayer, proclamation. We communicate to God in our evangelism and we're communicating to the lost sinner in our evangelism. That's what is required. Just think about this. Turn over with me to the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 4 for just a moment. Colossians chapter 4. Because here you'll find that Paul is asking for prayer. And here's what you think. You need to pray for situations for people to hear the gospel. Doors to be opened. Okay? You need to pray for the speaker who's actually proclaiming the gospel. And you need to pray for the sinner who's hearing the gospel. He's going to cover two of them here in Colossians 4. Verse 2, he says, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open up to us a door for the word. There it is. He's saying, pray for us that God will open up, that is the situation, a door of opportunity for the word. So that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been in prison that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Notice now he's saying pray not only that God will provide a situation for us to proclaim the gospel but that when we get in the situation that we will know how we should speak. Pray for the speaker. Pray for the one who's proclaiming the gospel that I will make it clear in the way that I ought to speak. So we pray for the situation. We pray for the, 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 the speaker himself. Also, beloved, you don't need to turn there, but if you looked over in Romans chapter 10 and verse 1, that's where Paul says, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them, that is for Israel, is for their salvation. He was praying for their salvation. He was praying for opportunities to share the gospel with them. He was asking for prayer for himself to go out and proclaim that gospel. I'll tell you this. One of the most encouraging things to my heart is that as I have visited some of our folks and some of our folks that that can't typically come to church at this time in their life, and I sit down and I talk with them, nothing encouraged me more than to hear each one of them say, Pastor, I just want you to know I pray for you. I am lifting you up in prayer. 
They are involved in evangelism because they are using one of the methods of our evangelism of prayer, praying for the speaker. So we have prayer and we have proclamation. When we think about proclamation, one of the ways obviously we proclaim the gospel to people is through our lips, through what we say. It could be from preaching from behind a pulpit, but it can be standing at somebody's door. You can be sitting down having a Bible study with someone, whatever the former fashion it may be. But you are there explaining to them the word of God, explaining to them the gospel. You're doing as Paul did there, explaining, giving evidence, persuading someone from the scriptures. It comes from our lips. But also, beloved, let me also remind you that there is a way in which we proclaim the gospel, not just through our lips, but through our life. Through our life. You can look over in 1 Peter and chapter 3. And in 1 Peter chapter 3, he's speaking about a godly woman and a godly wife that's living in such a way that it would help to bring her husband to the Lord. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1, In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be one. Be one without a word by the behavior of their wives. You could turn over to the, the book of Titus, in Titus chapter 2, and there Paul is really giving an evangelistic uh, means there of a method of living our life in such a way and he addresses every basically all the categories in the church the older men the older women the younger men and the younger women and he says live your life in such a way that you are honoring and adoring the adorning that the gospel of christ that when people look at your lives you are your life is just reflecting the love and the grace and the mercy of the salvation that you have received in christ alone tell you another way in which we get to proclaim the gospel I want to encourage you to take advantage of it not just with our lips and our life but also through literature and that's actually I would say is a biblical way of proclaiming it because when I read through the gospel of John and I come to the end of the gospel of John John actually tells us that he wrote the gospel of John with this purpose I wrote the gospel of John so that you might believe And you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God and that believing you may have life in his name. So I think it's important that we can actually proclaim the gospel, beloved, with with gospel books, gospel tracts. You can do it in our day with, with CDs and other forms that you can get the gospel out. So let me ask you this morning. Are you faithfully praying are you faithfully praying for situations to proclaim the gospel are you praying for those that are speaking forth the gospel are you praying for the sinners who are hearing the gospel are you living your life in such a way to adorn the gospel of Christ is the gospel coming forth from your lips Are you using your liberties in Christ for the gospel? That's one we didn't even talk about. But you could go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 to 23, where Paul says, look, I'm free from everybody. God saved me. and He set me free. But here's the deal. I'm willing to limit my freedoms that I have in Christ so that I can win more people to Christ. So I'll use my life in such a way 
that I just want to win people to Christ. I want to see people coming to Christ. But let me ask you this. You've heard this message this morning, the message of the gospel that says that we're all sinners, that says we're all in rebellion against God, that says that Jesus came and gave his life on a cross. He was without sin. And he went to that cross and he took upon himself our sins. He's the only one that could do that. No one else could do it because he's the only one without sin. And he takes our sin because God is holy and God is just. And God must deal with our sin. And the wages of our sin is death. Yet Christ died in our place. He was the sacrifice. He was the substitute. And God raised him from the dead, declaring him to be the Son of God, declaring him to be the perfect substitute and sacrifice for our sins. That he was satisfied. And that what he did can become yours. It can be given to you, provided to you, accredited to you. If you will count the cost and put your faith in him, embracing him as your Savior and as your Lord, to to love him, to be loyal to him, to follow him, that you just want Jesus above anything and everything else, and he will be the Lord of your life. It's kind of like this. It's like the picture of the you're driving a car, and your car, just think about it, is your life. And when you meet Jesus and you're wanting salvation, it's not Jesus, get in the the front seat. You can sit right here next to me. No, Jesus gets behind the wheel and you get in the back seat. And he starts driving. And he starts telling you and he starts saying, here's where we're going. Here's what you're going to do. Here's how you're going to live. Here's how you're going to be. That's where you count the cost because see, that's where some say, whoa, 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 whoa. I don't want that. I just want Jesus in the seat. Sometimes I just want him in the back seat. No, you you let him have the authority in your life and you surrender to Christ. Beloved, if you will, you will have life eternal. You will have the forgiveness of your sins. You have the promise of, of, of never being forsaken by him. You have the promise of spending eternity with him. The promise of his presence in your life here on out. If you will come to him. I want to ask you to bow your heads in prayer.